What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed as a catamite? Indeed, homosexuals are to be found in the houses of government. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The church in her wisdom sets before us a picture of wonderful and strong masculinity. A picture that we need at this time perhaps more than any other. John the Baptist was not a reed shaken by the wind. He stood his ground face to face with Pharisees and Sadducees, and he proclaimed to them the message of God to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. He was not a man dressed as a catamite, as a homosexual, and yes, that is the exact language Jesus himself uses, even though the English Standard Version has cleaned that up to soft clothing. And it is Jesus who points out, whether you find humor in it or not, that the homosexuals belong in the houses of government. Apropos, if ever. No, John wasn't one who was bent over for the government. John, rather, spoke the truth to Herod Antipas. And that was the very thing that had landed him in prison. He made enemies with a politician. Here is a man's man. But what biblical masculinity John displays above all is that in all things he points to Jesus. This is true masculinity. That every single man would point to Christ and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Indeed, whether it was John himself who doubted or his disciples who doubted, a perennial exegetical debate, it really doesn't matter. Whether it was himself or his disciples, John does the same thing he always does. He points to Jesus. Are you the one whom we seek? Are you the one who is coming? Or do we look for another? To understand the full wonder of what our Lord says, we have to go back to the biblical project of what was given man to do. To be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion over every beast of the sky, the earth, and the sea. Work is manly, and work is good from the very foundation and before the fall. 
It was the role of man to go out and imprint the world with the lordship of Jesus Christ, to spread his dominion, his reign, to order a world that though it was good was yet somewhat chaotic, to bring good order and the glory of Christ in all things, to spread that word of God all throughout the Garden of Eden and beyond throughout the entire world. That was the project. But of course we know what happens. The serpent entered. The woman was deceived, the Holy Spirit teaches, but the man was not. The man's sin was not identical to the woman's sin. The woman's sin was that she listened to the serpent and was deceived by him. Very clearly, the Holy Spirit spells out in Genesis 3.17 that the sin of the man was not that he was deceived by the Spirit, but rather that he listened to the voice of his wife instead of the voice of God. What flowed forth was what we call shorthand the curse. And as was the case in the day of our Lord, so still is the case now. That curse leads to all manner of chaos, all manner of decay, all manner of suffering and sorrow. It is from this come the blind, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, the dead, and the poor. So when John says, are you the one we seek? Are you the one who is coming? And Jesus responds, tell John what it is that you see and hear. I am he who reverses that curse. I am he who gives the blind their sight, who gives the lame to walk, who gives the lepers to be cleansed. I am he who gives the deaf ears to hear physically and spiritually. I am he who raises the dead. I am he who proclaims the gospel to the poor. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Perhaps it is the case that John heard the deeds of Jesus and thought, the Lord is coming to set all things right. Why am I sitting here in prison rotting? How is this part of the story? And if that is the case, then Jesus' words fit perfectly. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Because before our Lord pours out the fires of heaven, the fires of justice upon this earth and purges all the wicked, the Lord himself will first endure those fires in our place so that all men, no matter what sins they have committed, no matter what unrighteousnesses they have perpetuated, might find salvation full and free in him. Indeed, Christ is the new Adam, the new man, the utter epitome of that which is masculine. 
We see this even, the curse laid upon Adam is that by the sweat of his brow would he bring forth bread from the earth. But only by fighting thorn and thistle and emails and stacks of paper and all the stuff you have to deal with. So too, Jesus, we find then as the new Adam with the thorns and thistles wrapped around his brow and through this majestic act of masculinity, he makes not bread from the earth but becomes himself the very bread that we shall eat and live forever. Adam was cursed that not only would he sweat in order to bring forth bread and do so all the days of his life, but then he would return back to the earth. Dust you are to dust you shall return. And our Lord Jesus, the new Adam, precisely in that act of dying, destroys the power of death for himself and for all. In the vacuum and void caused by the feminism of the last century and a half or so, many masculine men have filled that space. Uh, the likes of Andrew Tate, Rolo Tomasi, Jack Donovan, these kinds of men's, the manosphere, the red pill, set forth an alternative to the feminized and wimpy masculinity of our day. Whatever good may be found in these men, ultimately they lead astray. They lead us from one error into the opposite error. And our young men need to pay special attention to this reality. Andrew Tate sets forth a kind of masculinity, the height of which is simply obtaining a Bugatti and a mansion and a quote-unquote harem of women. That's no masculinity at all. Rollo Tomasi would have us embrace an evolutionary standpoint, the theory of hypergamy, and he would drive men to either go their own way or to become seducers of women. Jack Donovan sets forward a bunch of masculine virtues that ultimately lead one straight to paganism and to Satan worship. But the virtues that he highlights are worth pointing out because they show that masculinity apart from Christ is no masculinity at all. Apart from Christ, what is it to be a strong man? Simply the deification of oneself, the imposition or ability to impose one's will upon others. What is courage without Christ? It devolves into machismo, this kind of chest-thumping caricature of what true masculinity is. What is mastery? Pursuing something until you master it. What is that without Christ? But entirely missing the point. Moving from one hobby to another like a hamster moving from one wheel to another until what? You die and it's all lost? What about the masculine virtue of honor? Without Christ, the pursuit of honor is but the pursuit of greed 
and ego. But in Christ, we see a true strength. We see a true courage. We see a true mastery. And we see a true honor. And nowhere do we see these more profoundly than in Christ and him crucified. The world derides Christ crucified as weakness, but here is the most profound strength. A love for God and for man that is unwavering even unto the death and the very worst of all deaths. Here is a courage beyond all other courageous acts. To put oneself under the wrath and penalty of God for the sake of others and to bear that while praying psalms. Here is courage untold. In Christ, we have a mastery of himself and of all things as he lays down his own life for the life of the world. And he finds honor in loving no matter how deeply he is dishonored. In Christ, we see all the masculine virtues par excellence. And in him and in John, we men have a template and a pattern to follow. We are not merely human beings. We are human becomings, being conformed into the image of Christ. Christ has high praise for John and indeed sets him up as a model and an example. Here is no shaking reed. Here is no man dressed like a catamite. Here is a prophet and more than a prophet, the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture who is unbuckling and unwavering. But that Old Testament scripture is specifically this, that he will prepare the way of Jesus himself. Which is why when John is imprisoned, falsely condemned, and murdered, everything is going exactly according to plan. Because as it goes for the forerunner, so will it go for Christ, who will likewise be arrested, falsely accused, and murdered. Jesus' praise for John the Baptist includes that among those born of women, there is none greater than John. John stands at the mountaintop, at the zenith and peak of Old Testament faithfulness. But something new has come. The old has to give way to the new. As John himself would word it, I must decrease. He the Lamb of God must increase. Those faithful who are born of woman are now supplanted by those faithful who are born of God. Jesus isn't saying that John had no faith, that John is sub-Christian. He's simply saying that the Old Testament faithfulness is over. The New Testament faithfulness has come. This is why the apostles say that the prophets of the Old Testament longed to see the very things that you see 
this day. As you come and place your lips to the chalice, the blood of Christ, the true man, flows forth freely, cleansing you and purging you of all your sins, filling you with strength and courage and inspiring you that you might pursue mastery of yourself and the only true honor there is, the commendation and praise of God when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.